Welcome to Act, Declaration, and Testimony for the whole of our Covenant and Reformation from the Reformed Presbytery. We'll be getting reading on page 199. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying, And now to SWRB's reading of the Act Declaration and Testimony, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. Advertisement The following supplement, having been a competent length of time before the church in overture, was adopted in Logan County, Ohio, May 1850. And although without the formality of a judicial sanction, we trust it will not be found destitute of divine authority. The design of it is to show the application of the principles of our testimony to society as organized in the United States. For although conventional regulations, civil and ecclesiastical, in this land are very different from the condition of society in Great Britain, where our testimony was first emitted, yet the corruptions of human nature embodied in the combinations of society are not less visible in this than in other lands, nor less hostile to the supreme authority of the Lord and his anointed. The beast and the false prophet continued to be the objects of popular devotion. Revelation 19, verse 20. Cincinnati, November 12, 1850. Supplement to Part 3. Containing an application of the principles of our covenant and testimony to the existing condition of society in these United States. The controversy which arose between the associate and reformed churches on the doctrine of civil magistracy was the occasion of greater divergency between them on collateral subjects. From false principles, consistent reasoning must produce erroneous conclusions. Assuming that the Son of God as mediator has nothing to do with the concerns of God's moral government beyond the precincts of the visible church, it would follow 
the church members, as citizens of the kingdoms of this world, neither owe him allegiance, nor are bound to thank him for common benefits. The assumption is, however, obviously erroneous, because, as mediator, he is head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1.22 Consequently, all people, nations, and languages are bound to obey and serve him in this office capacity and to thank him for his mercies. While this controversy was keenly managed by the respective parties in the British Isles, the Lord Christ interposed between the disputants, as it were, to decide the chief point in debate. By the rise of the British colonies west of the Atlantic against the parent country and their successful struggle to gain a national independence, a clear commentary was furnished on the long-contested principle that, in some cases, it is lawful to resist existing civil powers. Seceders, forgetting for the time their favorite theory, joined their fellow colonists in casting off the yoke of British rule. Those who vehemently opposed Reformed Presbyterians for disowning the British government joined cheerfully in its overthrow. How fickle and inconsistent is man! During the revolutionary struggle might be witnessed the singular spe spectacle, humbling to the pride of human reason, revolting to the sensibilities of the exercised Christian. Brethren of the same communion, on opposite sides of the Atlantic, pleading with the God of justice to give success to the respective armies. East of the ocean, the petition would be, Lord, prosper the British arms on the west, Lord, favor the patriots of these oppressed colonies. Such are the consequences natively resulting from a theory alike unscriptural and absurd, the principle deep laid in that system of opposition to the Lord and his anointed, emphatically styled the Antichrist. Great national revolutions are special trials of the faith and patience of the saints. No firmness of character will be proof against popular opinion and example at such a time. Without special aid from on high, Reformed Presbyterians in the colonies rejoiced in the success of the revolution issuing in the independence of the United States. Their expectation of immediate advantage to the Reformation cause was too sanguine. A new frame of civil polity was to be devised by the colonies now that they were independent of the British crown. This state of things called forth the exercise of human intellect in more than ordinary measure to meet the emergency. Frames of national policy are apt to warp the judgment of good men. Even Christian ministers are prone to substitute the maxims of human prudence for the precepts of inspiration. Many divines concede the idea of conforming the visible church to the model of the American Republic. The plan was projected and advocated of bringing all evangelical denominations into one confederated unity, while the integral parts should continue independent of each other. This plan would have defeated its own object, the unity of the visible church, and subverted that form of government established by Zion's king. Upon trial by some of the New England independents and Presbyterians, the plan was 
has proved utterly abortive. Prior to the Revolutionary War, a presbytery had been constituted in America upon the footing of the Covenanted Reformation. The exciting scenes and active sympathies attendant on the Revolutionary War added to a hereditary love of liberty carried many Covenanters away from their distinctive principles. The Reformed Presbyteriate was dissolved, and three ministers who belonged to it, joining some ministers of the Associate Church, formed that society, since known by the name of the Associate Reformed Church. The union was completed in the year 1782, after having been five years in agitation. These ministers professed, as the basis of union, the Westminster Standards, but the abstract of principles which they adopted as a more immediate bond of coalescence discovered to discerning spectators that the individuals forming the combination were by no means unanimous in their views of the doctrines taught in those standards. Indeed, there were certain sections of the confession reserved for future discussion which, in process of time, were wholly rejected. This attack upon a document venerable not so much for its age as its scriptural character, gave rise to zealous opposition by some in the body and ultimately resulted in a rupture. Two ministers dissented from the majority, left their communion, and proceeded to erect a new organization styled the Reformed Dissenting Presbytery. This was in the year 1801. At this date, there were four denominations in the United States claiming to be the legitimate successors of the British reformers, namely the Associate, Reformed, Associate Reformed, and Reformed Dissenting Presbyterians. Three of these professedly appear under the banner of a standing judicial testimony, which they severally omitted to the public. The Associate Reformed Church by judicial declaration and uniform practice, is opposed to this method of testimony-bearing. The Reformed Presbytery, which had been dissolved by the defection of the ministry during the Revolutionary War, was reorganized toward the close of the 18th century. The troubles in Ireland, when the inhabitants united for the purpose of gaining independence of the British crown, were the occasion of bringing strength to the Church in America. Reformed Presbyterians, feeling sensibly with others the arm of British tyranny, joined interests hastily with Papists and others in one sworn association for the purpose of overturning the existing government by force of arms. The enterprise, as might have been expected, was unsuccessful. Isaiah 8, 11 and 12, Obadiah 7, 2 Corinthians six seventeen. Many fled to the asylum which God had provided shortly before in America. Among the refugees were some of the covenanters by which the church was strengthened in her ministry and membership. Early in the 19th century, measures were taken by the Reformed Presbytery in the United States for re-exhibiting the principles of a covenanted reformation in a judicial way. Accordingly, in the year 1806, the Presbytery published, as adopted, a work entitled Reformation Principles Exhibited, a book 
which has ever since been called, popularly called the American testimony. The familiar designation testimony, the general complexion of the book, the orthodox aspect of terms, and even most of the leading sentiments of the work gave it currency and rendered it generally acceptable to pious and intelligent covenanters. And however it seemed to the unsuspecting to sustain, it eventually and effectually supplanted the Scottish testimony. The men who had the principal hand in giving shape and direction to the principles and practice of covenanters in the United States at that time were located in some of the most populous and commercial cities on the Atlantic coast, where temptations to conform to this world were many and pressing. A disposition dis position to temporize was manifested in these localities soon after their principles had been judicially exhibited. The last war between the United States and England subjected covenanters to new trials in America. As aliens, they were deemed unsafe residents at the seaboard and were ordered by the government to retire a certain distance to the interior much like the course pursued by Claudius Caesar towards the Jews in Acts 18, verse 2. To meet the exigency, a deputation of the church was appointed to repair it to Washington in 1812 and offer a pledge that they would defend the integrity of the country against all enemies. The measure was, however, never carried out. The church increased in numbers and influence and began to be noticed with respect and professions of esteem among surrounding denominations. Some of her members had ventured to act in the capacity of citizens of the United States by serving on juries. This was, of course, managed for a time clandestinely. At length, waxing confident by success, they began to act more openly. This gave rise to a petition addressed to the Supreme Judicatory of the Church. The petitioners were answered by instructing them to apply for direction to the inferior judicatories, thus shunning the duty of applying their own acknowledged principles. This was in the year 1823. This course did not satisfy the petitioners, and application was made again to Synod in 1825 to explain the import of their former act. The reply was, This synod never understood any act of theirs relative to their members sitting on juries or contravening the old common law of the church on that subject. A response obviously as equivocal as the preceding. As early as 1823, a motion was made in the synod to open a correspondence with the judicatories of other denominations. This motion was resisted and for the time proved abortive. At next meeting of Synod, however, the measure was brought before that body by a proposal from the General Assembly to correspond by delegation. This proposal found many, and some of them able, advocates in the Reformed Presbyterian Synod. The measure was, however, again defeated, but immediately after the failure, a number of ministers forsook the Reformation ranks and consorted with the General Assembly. In the year 1828, the Synod gave its sanction and lent its patronage to the Colonization Society, which was continued till the year 1836, 
when its patronage was retransferred to the cause of abolition. The spirit of declension became manifest at the session of Synod in 1831, when some of the most prominent and practical principles of the Reformed Church were openly thrown into debate in the pages of a monthly periodical under the head of free discussion. Through the pernicious influence of that perfidious journal, sustained by the patronage of ministers of eminent standing in the Church, a large proportion, nearly one-half of the ministry were prepared by the next meeting of Synod in 1833 to renounce the peculiar principles and long-known usages of the Reformed Covenanted Church. Organizing themselves as a separate body, yet claiming their former ecclesiastical name, they deliberately incorporated with the government of the United States and some of the senior ministers, more fully to testify their loyalty in their old age, took the oath of naturalization, thus breaking down the carved work which they had for many years assiduously, assiduously labored to erect. It was hoped that the severe trial to which the professing witnesses of Christ were subjected at that time would have taught them a lesson not soon to be forgotten. It was thought by many that the church was now purged from the leaven, which had almost leavened the whole lump. The synod met in 1834 when a perverse spirit was evident in the midst of its members. The colonization and abolition societies with other associations the exfoliations of Antichrist, had evidently gained an ascendancy in the affections of many of the members. The altercation and bitterness with which the claims of these societies were discussed evidenced to such as were free from their infection that some of those present viewed these popular movements as transcending in importance the covenanted testimony of the Church. As the practice of occasional hearing was on the increase in some sections of the church, synod was memorialized on that subject, but refused to declare the law of the church. The old spirit of conformity to the world was still more manifest in 1836, when synod was importuned by her children from the eastern and western extremes of the church by petition, memorial, protest, and appeal, growing out of the practice then generally prevalent, of incorporating with the voluntary associations of the age. The response of the Supreme Judicatory was in this case as ambiguous as on any former occasion. The backsliding course of the factious majority was but feebly counteracted by dissent from only two members of Synod. A respectable minority having been outwitted by the carnal wisdom of those who were prompt in applying the technicalities of law. Hope was, however, cherished that this check so publicly given, together with the practical workings of the system of moral amalgamation, would induce even reckless innovators to pause, to consider their ways and their doings. This hope, however, rational and sanguine, was totally disappointed in 1838, when the table of the Supreme Judicatory might be said to be crowded with petitions, letters, and remonstrances, memorials, protests, and appeals. The just grievances of the children of witnessing and martyred fathers were treated with contempt, laid on the table, returned with the cry, let them be kicked under the table, and so forth. 
and when some attempted to urge their right to be heard, they were called to order, treated with personal insult, or subjected to open violence. A few of these, having thus experienced the tyranny and abuse of the ruling faction, declined the authority and communion of synod and established a separate fellowship. When the Synod again met in 1840, the same measures which had been carried by mob violence at this preceding meeting were pressed as before, but with less tumult, leaders having learned caution from the consequences following their former outrageous conduct. Matters had now come to a crisis when a reclaiming minority were reduced to this dilemma either to acquiesce in the almost total subversion of the covenanted constitution of the church, or by separating from an irreclaimable majority attempts by an independent organization to make up the breach. It is easy to see which alternative was duty, not only from the nature of the case, but from the well-defined footsteps of the flock. Reformation has been effected in the Church of God in all ages by the protestation and separation of a virtuous minority. At this juncture, a paper was laid upon the table of synod, of which the following is a true copy, Preamble and Resolutions. Whereas, it is the province and indispensable duty of the synod, when society is in a state of agitation as at present, to know the signs of the times and what Israel ought to do, and whereas it is also the duty of the synod to testify in behalf of truth, to condemn sin and testify against those who commit it, to acquaint our people with their danger and search into the causes of God's controversy with them and with us, and whereas it is the duty of synod further to point out to the people of God the course to be pursued, that divine judgments may be averted or removed. Therefore, first resolved that uniting with or inducing to fellowship by the members of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the voluntary and irresponsible associations of the day, composed of persons of all religious professions and of no profession, be condemned as unwarranted by the word of God, the subordinate standards of the church, and the practice of our covenant fathers. Second, that an inquiry be instituted in order to ascertain the grounds of God's controversy with us in the sins of omission and commission, wherewith we are chargeable in our ecclesiastical relations. Third, that the sins thus ascertained be confessed mourned over and forsaken, and our engagement to the contrary duties renewed, that the Lord may return, be entreated of his people, and leave a blessing behind him. This paper was instantly laid on the table, and when, at a subsequent session of the court, it was regularly called up for action, it was again and finally laid on the table. Ever since that transaction, this paper has been diligently misrepresented as consisting only of one resolution and that the first contrary to its own evidence. After the final adjournment of Synod, those individuals who, as a minority, had opposed the innovations and backslidings of their brethren, embraced an opportunity for consultation. 
It appeared that, without preconcert, they were unanimous that all legal means, having failed to reclaim their backsliding brethren, who constituted a large majority of synod, both duty and necessity required them to assume a position of in position independent of former organizations, that they might, untrammeled, carry out practically their testimony. Accordingly, two ministers and three ruling elders proceeded to constitute a presbytery on constitutional ground, declaring in the deed of constitution adherence to all Reformation attainments. This transaction took place in the city of Allegheny, June 24, 1840. The declining majority continued their course of backsliding, following those who had relinquished their fellowship with slanderous imputations and pretended censure, as is usual in such cases. Since that time, there are no evidences given by them either of repentance or reformation. The Synod of Scotland has for many years been in a course of declension, in many respects very similar to that of America. As early as the year 1815, some ministers of that body began to betray a disposition to accommodate their profession to the taste of the world. The judicial testimony emitted by their fathers was represented as too elaborate and learned to be read and understood by the common reader, and too severe in its strictures upon the principles and practices of other Christian denominations. The abstract of terms of communion was viewed as too strict and uncharitable, especially the Arkansas uh, covenant became particularly obnoxious. By persevering importunity for a series of years, this degenerating party prevailed so far in the Synod as to have the Arkansas deed expunged from the symbols of their profession. This was accomplished in 1822 and taken in connection with other movements indicating a prevailing spirit of worldly conformity, this outrage upon the constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church gave rise to a succession from the body by the oldest minister in the connection and a considerable number of others, elders and members. At the above date, the Reverend James Reed declined the fellowship of the Scottish Synod and he maintained the integrity of the covenanted standards in a separate communion till his death, declaring at his latter end that he could not have laid his head upon a dying pillow in peace if he had not acted as he did in that matter. Deaf to the remonstrances of this aged and faithful minister, his former brethren pursued their perverse and downward course until their new position became apparent by the adoption of a testimony in terms of communion adapted to their taste. Their testimony was adopted in 1837. This document ostensibly consists of two parts, historical and doctrinal, but really only of the latter as authoritative. This will appear from the preface to the history, as also that it is without the formal sanction of the Synod, which appears prefixed to the doctrinal part of the book. A considerable time before they ventured to obtrude this new testimony on the Church, they had prepared the way for its introduction by supplanting the authoritative rules of society framed and adopted by their fathers. This was done by issuing what they called a Guide to Social Worship, 
which the Scottish Synod set forth under an ambiguous re recommendation, and the spurious production was republished by order of Synod in America, 1836, with the like equivocal expression of approbation. What has been just related of the Reform Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland will apply substantially to that section of the same body in Ireland. On the doctrine of the magistrate's power, circa sacra, however, there was a controversy of several years' continuance and managed with much asperity, in which the reverends Messrs. John Paul, Doctor of Divinity, and Thomas Houston were most distinguished disputants. Their contendings issued in breach of organic fellowship in 1840. Indeed, the sisterhood, which had subsisted for many years among the synods east and west of the Atlantic Ocean, was violated in 1833, when the rupture took place in the Synod of America by the elopement of the declining party, who are since known by alliance with the civil institutions of the United States. Among these five synods, the principle called elective affinity has been strikingly exemplified, while what the scripture denominates schism has been as visibly rampant as perhaps at any period under the Christian dispensation. This brief historical sketch may serve to show the outlines of the courses respectively pursued by the several parties in the British Isles in America who have made professions of attachment to that work in the Kingdom of Scotland especially, which has been called the Second Reformation. But the duty of fidelity to Zion's King and even the duty of charity to these backsliding brethren, together with the informing of the present and succeeding generations, require that we notice more formally some of the more prominent measures of these ecclesiastical bodies, and so manifest more fully our relation to them. It is not to be expected, however, that we are about to condescend upon all the erroneous sentiments or steps of defection supplied by the history of these communities. To direct, to direct the honest inquiries of the Lord's people and assist them in that process of reasoning by which facts are compared with acknowledged standards, supreme and subordinate, that their moral character may be tested, is all that is proposed in the following sections. Section 1. The secession from the revolutionary Revolution Church of Scotland in that country assumed a position in relation to the civil institutions of Great Britain, which their posterity continued to occupy until the present time in the United States without material alteration. First, they cooperate practically with all classes in the civil community in maintaining national rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. They give their suffrages toward the elevation of vile persons to the highest places of civil dignity in the American Confederacy, knowing the candidates to be strangers or enemies to Emmanuel. And although they have recently lifted a testimony against that system of robbery called slavery, which is so far right, yet this fact only goes to render their professed loyalty to an unscriptural frame of civil government as manifestly inconsistent as it is impious. Second, 
They have all along in the United States renounced the civil part of the British covenants, declaring that they neither have nor ever had anything to do with them. Truth is not local, nor does the obligation of the second table of the moral law, on which that part of our covenants is plainly founded, depend on the permanency of our residence in a particular portion of the world. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. It follows that however solemnly or frequently they profess to renew their father's covenants, the whole transaction displays their unfaithfulness to the Lord, who is a party in the covenants, and is calculated to mislead the unwary. Third, their unsteadfastness is further evidenced by conforming to other ecclesiastical communities in the loose practice of occasional or indiscriminate hearing and even in some instances of ministerial intercommunion, the law of their church on that matter having become obsolete. Against these courses, in some of which that body has obstinately persevered for more than a hundred years, we deem it incumbent on us to continue an uncompromising testimony. Many comments the, the moral governor of the nation has furnished in his providence within the last century, making still more intelligible the righteous claims of his word. But seceders seem to have their moral vision obscured by a veil of hereditary prejudice. We trust the Lord is on his way to destroy the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Isaiah 25, verse 7. Section 2. Our testimony against the unfaithfulness of the Associate Reformed Church continues also without material change since the rise of that body. The following, among others, may here be noticed as constituting just grounds of opposition in a way of testimony bearing by all who would be found faithful to the Lord and their covenant engagements. First, their very origin was unwarranted by Scripture. All the scriptural attainments to which they professed to adhere were already incorporated in the standards of the organic bodies, from whose fellowship they seceded. They did therefore make a breach without a definite object and multiply divisions in the visible body of Christ without necessity. Thus they did violence to the royal law of love, for while under a profession of charity they invited to their new fellowship their former brethren. The nature of the case evinces a disposition to unmitigated tyranny. This state of things, we think, has not been generally understood. We shall here endeavor to render it intelligible. The fact of organizing that church, the associate reformed, said to both covenanters and seceders, it is your duty to dissolve your respective organizations and join us. This is undeniable. The covenanter or seceder replies by asking, What iniquity have you or your fathers found in us that you forsook our communion? And so forth. Not any, replies the associate reformed church, only some trifling opinions peculiar to you, severally which we deem unworthy of contending about. Only join our church and we will never quarrel with you relative to your singularities. Ah, replies the other party, the matters about which we differ are trifling in your account. How, then, 
Could they be of such magnitude as to warrant your breaking fellowship with us? What you call trifles, peculiarities, and so forth, we cannot but still judge important principles, sealed by the precious blood of martyrs. Must we deny these, or bury them in silence to gain membership in your new church? Is this the nature and amount of your professed charity? This is not that heaven-born principle that rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You break fellowship for what you esteem mere trifles. You propose to us a new term of communion, with which it is morally impossible that we should comply without doing violence to our consciences. Is this charity or tyranny? Second, although covenanting was declared by this body at their origin to be an important duty, they never recognized the solemn deeds of their fathers as binding on them, nor have they ever attempted the knowledge duty in a way supposed to be competent to themselves. Nay, the obligation of the British covenants has been denied both openly and frequently from the pulpit and the press, and even attempts have been made, not seldom, by profane ridicule to bring them into contempt. The very duty of public social covenanting, either in a national or ecclesiastical capacity, has been often opposed in the polemic writings of the ministers of this body, however often inculcated and exemplified in the Word of God. The moral nature of the duty taken in connection with prophetic declarations to be fulfilled only under the Christian dispensation demonstrates the permanency of this divine ordinance until the end of the world. Third, this church set out with unsound views of church fellowship, as has been already in part made appear, but when their position came to be more pointedly defined, they made the novel distinction between fixed and occasional communion. The practical tendency of this unscriptural experiment was necessarily to Catholic communion, which theory was soon advocated by some of the most prominent of the ministry, and accordingly eventuated in the merging of a large number of her ministry and membership in the communion of the General Assembly. Fourth, on the doctrine of the divine ordinance, of civil government, this church has all along been unsound, as is fully evidenced in the practice of her members, which has been similar to that of seceders. Our testimony against the latter is, in this particular, equally directed against the former. Fifth, this church has appeared as the advocates of a boundless toleration, conforming her views and policy in a most servile manner to the infidel model presented in the civil constitutions of Republican America. It would seem, indeed, that this body aimed at conforming their ecclesiastical polity to that standard, from the fact that the very symbol of their profession as a corporate body is designated the Constitution of the Associate Reformed Church, a designation which might be considered as militating against the supremacy of the Holy Scriptures. In this constitution, a sphere is assigned to conscience, which is incompatible with due subjection to the supreme lawgiver. As well might the will or any other faculty of the soul of man be invested with this impious supremacy and immunity from control by any authority instituted on earth by the only Lord of conscience.
Jehovah will rule the consciences of his creatures, as well as their judgments and wills, by his holy law, in the civil commonwealth, in the church and in the family. Sixth, the unfaithfulness of this body appears further in shunning to declare the divine right and unalterableness of presbyterial church government. She testifies not against prelacy or independency. If this church is presbyterial in practice, it is on no better footing than that of the Revolution Church of Scotland. Seventh, the purity of divine worship is not guarded by the terms of fellowship in this church. It is true, no hymns merely of human composure are allowed in her churches, but what mean these guarded terms and phrases, merely churches? The best interpretation of these cunningly contrived expressions is supplied by the practice of those ministers of the body who scruple not to offer unto God hymns merely of human composure when occupying pulpits of other denominations or sojourning for a night in families where these hymns are statedly used. It is known that this part of the order of public worship has been submitted in some instances to the voice of the congregation by their pastor, thus manifesting in the same act latitudinarianism in regard both to the government and worship of the house of God. Lastly, to specify no further, laxity of discipline is observable in this church. She has always admitted to her fellowship and to a participation in her special privileges, the seals of the covenants, persons who openly deny the divine warrant for a fast in connection with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, yea, who ridicule that part of the solemnity as superstitious. The same privileges are granted in this church to such as habitually neglect the worship of God in the family, nor does this church inculcate or enjoin as a part of Christian practice fellowship meetings for prayer and conference. We must, as witnesses for the cause of Christ, solemnly protest against these sentiments and correspondent practices as inconsistent with the scripture and the reformation attainments of our covenant fathers. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. 
The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.